Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Kimberly Nicholas will join us to discuss Under the Sky We Make. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, changes to the global environment continue unabated, yet the messages put out to the public are confusing and at odds with one another. Is it possible that individuals can make a difference? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Kimberly Nicholas. Dr. Nicholas is Associate Professor of Sustainability Science at Lund, publishing numerous scientific and popular articles on the subject. She has penned the new book, under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. And Dr. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. A great book you've put together here, Under the Sky We Make, where you talk about the message of climate change and what we can do as individuals to address it. I was writing for a group that includes many of my friends from college, as well as people I met on trains and strangers at parties, who fall into this group of the majority of Americans, actually, who know that climate change is happening and humans are causing it and that it's bad, and who want to fix it and want to be part of the solution, both through supporting policies and through changes in our own lives. But after that, things get a little fuzzy. I think people really don't know what it is that is the source of the problem, where our actions can make the biggest difference, both in our own lives and how we can actually contribute as individuals and coming together as communities and collectives to changing big systems of culture and politics and power and money and the kind of systemic changes that we need, as well as personal changes to actually fix this problem. It oftentimes seems as if it's an issue that's beyond the control of the individual. I think there are two points I'd like to make there. The first is that it's really important for those of us who fall in this small group globally of high emitters to make personal lifestyle changes to reduce our own overconsumption. And that's a journey I've been on myself, and that's something I, I write about in the book and how I've approached that. But we know that it's only about 10% of the global population that cause about 50% of household climate pollution. So for this generally high income, above about $38,000 a year income is the cutoff for this being in this group globally. We do really need to look at our personal carbon footprints and make changes. At the same time, individuals come together to form businesses and government. We are citizens who elect and uh, put pressure on our representatives. And we're family members, community members, part of schools and all sorts of systems that we actually have so much more power than we realize or use that we could be directing towards this incredibly important project of climate stability. What are the major sources of carbon emission? Well, about three quarters of climate pollution comes from burning fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. And that's for heating and electricity and transportation, for example. The remaining quarter comes from our food system, how we use land to produce food and forestry, for example. So you can look at that from basically what we need to do, bottom line, is leave fossil fuels in the ground to transition to a, an energy system that is actually clean and not causing climate breakdown, and to change our food system so that 
that we are actually working with rather than against nature. And one big part of that is a much more plant-based diet than we have today because animal agriculture uh, is responsible for a really disproportionate part of the climate problem. First part of your book about a shifted mindset from that of exploitation to that of uh, regeneration. Yes, and I, I tried to put principles to guide decisions across diverse circumstances. And basically, my diagnosis, you know, I say I'm a little embarrassed, it sounds a bit naive, but after crunching all the data and going through all the statistics, I think fundamentally the root cause of many of our problems, including the climate crisis, is people thinking that some people are better than others and that people in general are superior to nature. And getting away from this mindset towards one that recognizes, okay, the whole point needs to be centering the well-being of people and nature together. They, we both need to thrive and every person needs the opportunity for a good life. So to do that, we need to get to the root cause of problems, not try to clean up their symptoms after the fact and prepare and strengthen our ability to cope with change and to take care of the vulnerable. And that's how we're going to actually get to solve this problem argument one sees from the other side, of course, is that why should they be the ones to give up comforts and status and eventually their advantage in order for this change? Well, it's interesting you mentioned status. I mean, I think that's part of the cultural changes that we need to make it cool and sexy and desirable and high status to do the things and have the things and the kind of life that is actually compatible with a safe and stable climate. So those are cultural changes, for example, having to do with media and advertising and not accepting ads from fossil fuel companies, valorizing cars and planes as something that is high status. Those kind of cultural changes, I think, are, are really important. And then to your point about why should it be me? I think what the data show and what I, I see myself is we know that the majority of Americans are already concerned or alarmed about climate change and know the facts that it's us, it's warming, we're sure it's bad, but we can fix it. But then people get a bit stuck in knowing what that actually looks like. And I think what we see a lot of is that everyone kind of finger pointing and saying somebody else should go first. And what I'm arguing is that we all need to take responsibility for what we can change, what's actually in our sphere of influence and power to change. And by doing so, that gives us energy and authority and more ability to push for change at higher levels who also have to take their responsibility. Where can the real incentives drive this change from? Well, definitely financial incentives are imperative. And I mean, the system we have right now that makes fossil fuels, which are dangerous and dirty and deadly, um, cheaper, makes no sense. So one big place to start is eliminating those subsidies and ultimately getting to the point of realizing what we actually need to do is stop producing and consuming fossil fuels entirely. So we should have incentives that are pointing in that direction rather than the opposite. Do you see that type of will globally, nationally? What's your sense of where we're at? Yes, there definitely is a groundswell of support and recognition. For example, here in Sweden, we have the national policy goal of the government is to be fossil-free within one generation. There's increasing scientific research on this, and there's increasing social movements and social pressure. For example, coming from the divestment movement of climate organizations pushing for universities and churches and now increasingly investment firms and, and others to disclose and basically take their money away from supporting fossil fuels and invest it instead in organizations and companies that are compatible with a, a stable climate. And that is creating real pressure on the on industries to, to live up to those demands. 
In your book, you talk about five stages of radical climate acceptance and how we can navigate these steps. So the five stages of radical climate acceptance that I've come up with, drawing both from my own experience and some research in psychology, are ignorance, avoidance, doom, all the feels, and purpose. And basically, it's not just a straight line, it's an ongoing process, but the point is to get beyond ignorance by informing ourselves of the problem. Most people have already done that to some extent. To get through avoidance, which a lot of people get stuck in because I think we're afraid of what the truth looks like and what it might mean. Through doom, which is an easy place to get stuck, and many people have reached out to me from overwhelmed and, and hopeless, which is a really tough place to be. And the way to do that is through all the feels, through the whole middle section of my book is about facing all these climate feelings of grief and sadness and anger, but also determination and joy and ultimately finding purpose. So figuring out that's the fifth stage. How is it that we can each use our talents and what we think is fun and what we're good at towards this incredibly important purpose of uh, taking care of people in nature and ensuring climate stability for us and for future generations? So it's kind of a way of helping us navigate and identifying our core values, putting those into practice, which actually feels really good and is, I think, the, the change we need to make. Be able to give some examples of changes that uh, you've implemented yourself. Well, our research shows that the three highest impact areas for individuals, uh, high emitting individuals to make a big difference are to go car, flight and meat free. I've been car free since 2010 when I moved from California to Sweden. So I sold my two cars when I moved here. I am also meat free and went flyer. So I've gone from a peak flying year of 2010. I took 15 round trip flights to now I'm more than 90% reduced my flying down to at most one flight per year back home to see my family. And actually my uh, frequent flyer gold card is in a museum called Carbon Ruins, which is a museum from the future. It's an exhibit that looks back from the year 2053 on how we successfully made this transition to a fossil-free society. And, you know, putting this gold card in the drawer and saying, isn't it completely ridiculous to think that we once lived in a society that incentivized and valorized the kind of climate polluting behavior that we know was a huge part of the problem. So those are some of the changes that I've made myself. Certainly some of those, especially in the U.S., were largely a car infrastructure, maybe difficult to implement. Well, one thing that's really encouraging is to know that car dependence is a choice. It's not always a personal choice. I mean, if we have the ability and privilege to choose where we live, for example, that can make a big difference of how close we are to work and school and reduce or eliminate our need for a car. But it's also a social choice. It's a result of policies about how cities get planned, how infrastructure gets built, what gets invested in and maintained. So I think car dependence feels like uh, such a inevitability in the U.S., but it really is a choice, and it's a choice that's locked in by current policies and can be unlocked by different and better policies. And we've seen that work, for example, in Copenhagen, Denmark, which is known as a cycling paradise. It used to be really dominated by cars, and from a successful citizen campaign, the the city people instead of cars at the center of the city to prioritize cycling and have safe and um, convenient cycling routes that are actually faster and easier as a way to get around the city and healthier and have so many advantages. So basically making, putting our money where our mouths are and investing in the kind of cities and landscapes that actually are healthy and attractive and enjoyable to live in and actually just less dependent on cars to begin with is a really important priority. 
You know, after reading the book, after looking at it, you know, for that for this group of people that know about climate change, but they want to implement what pieces of advice, what would you like to take home? Well, one important take home, I think, is this combination of facts, feelings and action that we need. So we have the facts that we need on climate change. We can harness the feelings uh, around them to motivate our action. And for those in the high emitting group, that includes me, our personal choices really matter and reducing our own overconsumption is really important. But we also are part of so many systems that we aren't using and recognizing the power that we have as citizens, as members of organizations, in our workplaces, in schools and communities. We have so much possibility to actually come together and affect really meaningful and important change. And that is how change happens. And we have to demand it because this decade is really critical. We were just talking with Dr. Kimberly Nicholas. She's the author of the new book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. Dr. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.